Hi, everybody, and welcome to the February 3rd, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on new fundraising numbers coming out, showing that Mayor Michael Hancock in Denver is indeed thinking about a third term. What we've seen here is that, it, according to his uh, campaign, although no official announcement has been made, his spokesperson noted that running for a third term is absolutely his intention after the numbers show that he has $77,000 in the bank. Patty Calhoun from Westward. Uh, now, we're still many years away. I mean, 2019 is when the third term would be eligible to be run. Uh, but it seemed telling that there's already $77,000 in the bank. What do you think? Well, it's not just the money that's in the bank, but the fact that his office has been much more organized in January 2017 than previously. He's meeting, he met today with people in the Latino community upset about the sanctuary city issue. He, they've sent out better communication on the homeless. They're definitely getting their act together. Is it together enough to win a third term from all the people who are tired of cooling their heels when they were waiting for him not to run again? We'll see. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, Patty brings up a good point. A third term uh, isn't always automatic. There could be some problems there. Do you think he's going to find a challenger or two? Well, the, the point of raising all this money early and making it well known is to prevent that, which he did quite successfully in winning his second term. It accumulates so much money that everybody else is afraid to run against you and, uh, and clear the field that way. Uh, now that he's adding some administrative competence uh, to his uh, repertoire, uh, that'll help as well. But that certainly wasn't necessary for his unopposed reelection uh, for his second term. Penfield Tate joins us, attorney with QTAC Rock, also a longtime state lawmaker. Uh, you know, I know we're a few years away, but uh, do you think that there's going to be, like, you know, as I uh, asked David, some challengers out there because of some of the problems that Hancock has run into? He's, he's run into more controversy than easy sailing than said maybe his predecessor did in Mayor, Han in Mayor Hickenlooper. Well, you know, it's it's difficult to, to serve as mayor for six years and, and have smooth sailing and not have any problems or issues. Um, and I think, um, as Patty indicated, you've got a number of folks who uh, have been cooling their heels because when he ran the first time, he actually publicly announced that he was only going to do two terms. So uh, this, for some people, would constitute um, a, a change of position. Uh, but, you know, clearly he's his staff has made no qualms about the fact he's running for a third term, um, he's going to get some opposition. Someone's going to run. Uh, that's clear. Uh, and David's right. That's why he's out raising money now. Um, also keep in mind the timing of the political calendar. This is the time, if you're Mayor Hancock, to make noise because uh, as this legislative session ends, all eyes are going to turn to the gubernatorial election and no one's going to pay, to the pay attention to the Denver City elections at all until after that's done. 
Ran out the panel, Gregory Moore, former yeah. editor of the Denver Post, also a current professor up at CU's uh, communication school. Uh, so a third term in Denver isn't necessarily smooth sailing. We talk about you know getting mm -hmm. into the third term, but third terms can be tough. Uh, is this a wise move for Hancock to be considering a third term? Uh, I can see why he is considering a third term. There's a lot of um, projects and development that has been, you know, sort of launched under his watch. Uh, I think he wants to sort of see some of that through, the building out of the city. I think a real important indicator of that is the hiring of Alan uh, Salazar as his chief of staff because he's not the, you know, traditional operational guy, but instead a political guy and a policy guy. And I think that's going to help round out that message for him. But I think it's wise. Um, if you're committed to finishing what you start, it makes some sense. Mm -hmm. There's some long-range projects there yeah. as well. A lot of things on the table. On Tuesday, President Trump nominated federal appellate court judge Neil Gorsuch to replace Antonin Scalia on the U.S. Supreme Court. Gorsuch is the youngest judge to be nominated in 25 years and is the son of former EPA director Ronald Reagan and Gorsuch Buford. So, Patty, uh, we thought we were going to talk about this last week, but we thought, yeah, maybe it's not going to happen. We kind of hedged our bets at not being a, a Colorado judge, just like a Colorado story, and ended up being a Colorado story. Now that we know it's going to be a Colorado judge up through this process, what do you think? Well, it feels like it's the early 80s all over again. So, Ann Gorsuch was what, what could have been the worst EPA head until now we have Pruitt going in. And the stories, we had a lot of Coloradans. It wasn't just her, it was her husband, Bob Burford. We had a lot of Coloradans in the Reagan cabinet. You can't really um, tar her son with the brush of what went down with Ann Gorsuch, but it's going to be really, really tricky by all accounts, and we'll let the lawyers at the table talk about that. You know, he's got a good pedigree. He worked for Wizard White, our last Colorado um, Supreme Court justice. He worked for Kennedy. He's had, he's made some good judgments. He made a few good judgments just last week in a ruling about uh, the mariachi ban that it was the victim of a false um, raid by the police. But you still cannot get over the fact that if everything had operated the way things are supposed to, he wouldn't even be nominated now because Obama's last nominee would be in the Supreme Court and we wouldn't have been sitting here for a year. David, uh, speaking of what Patty just brought up, uh, Democrats saw that their opportunity to fill a position come and go because Republicans simply said, we're not going to confirm. Uh, the shoes on the other foot now because Republicans are now going to say we're going to sail through these confirmation hearings and Democrats wanting to put up a fight, but they're not in the majority. Do you think Gorsuch faces a fierce nomination fight? That depends on whether people like Senator Bennett, for example, want to play the rage uh, machine for their base or whether they want to be serious and responsible. Whatever happened, <clears throat> whatever happened with Garland happened. Uh, and the Senate there followed rules that had been announced by Charles Schumer and Joe Biden previously of saying we are absolutely not going to confirm uh, a Bush nominee in the last in in the president uh, a president's nominee in the in the last year of a presidency. That's just that that's nothing new. And Obama's one of his uh, White House counsels said, yeah, of course we would have done the same thing if the shoe were on the other foot. So people can keep on being mad about that, but we're we're here where we are. Gorsuch is probably the best person that could have been named. He is a stickler for following the law, including when the statute is clear, you do what the statute says and don't try to invent something contrary to it. He's absolutely fearless 
about ruling against the government. And that, that, by the way, is a big contrast between him and Merrick Garland, who is also certainly a very eminent, distinguished, and a nice guy, you know, very, very popular for his good temperament. But Garland uh, tended to, to always find a way to rule in favor of the government, whereas Gorsuch is more literal statutory and constitutional approach leads to different results. So if you're worried about the growing autocracy in this country, which, which I definitely am, not only with this president, but with a trend that's been growing for, for many decades, uh, Gorsuch is the best possible person to stand up against it. And the opposition to this is just the usual collection of cliches. He's out of the mainstream, by which they mean he's not a Democrat, because they, they never find any Republican nominee to be in the mainstream. And, you know, he's for the corporations against the little guy. And all, all these stupid cliches, which they already had dug out of their, their chest uh, of, of stupid things uh, long before any particular person was nominated. And they'd be saying the, the same thing about anybody else. So, Senator Benner, if you want to be responsible, give Gorsuch a fair chance and uh, nominate a mainstream Republican, vote for a mainstream Republican nominee. It did seem that some of the press releases coming out of opposition campaigns immediately after Gorsuch was named as almost as seem like, you know, insert nomination name yeah. here. Yeah. And so I, I get your point. Uh, Penn, you're one of our two esteemed lawyers in the panel. What do you think of uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, and his legal record and what that might mean as a potential justice? I would offer that his legal record means nothing at this point. This has the potential to be a real mess for a couple of reasons. Uh, consider the fact that a Supreme Court justice is a unique position and appointment. It's really a president's legacy to future generations of Americans. Presidents are limited to serving eight years maximum. It's rare that a Supreme Court justice sits for less than eight years. So it is a way for a president to embody their thought, their doctrines, their opinions beyond their term in office. We also have a unique situation because what happened with Merrick Garland last year wasn't just that the, he wasn't confirmed. The Senate, controlled by Republicans, refused to even have a hearing or even consider the nomination for over a year. That's unprecedented. And it's true that when Chuck Schumer was running things and Democrats ran the Senate, they may not have confirmed some of President Bush's nominees, but they had hearings on all of them. And so there's, a, there's really a strong feeling that this is sort of the hijacked nomination. And I think regardless of this nominee's credentials, there's going to be a political battle. Now, how strong it is and how strident Democrats are has yet to be determined. But I think that you'll see a lot of um, pretty strenuous opposition. And, and, you know, I understand, you know, the point about cliches, but one of the things about cliches is sometimes they're accurate. Sometimes, indeed. Greg, uh, speaking of that potential fight, we haven't seen, I guess, so far, some of the confirmation battles that we thought we'd see with some of the cabinet picks. When some of those cabinet picks were picked, it was almost like there, there, it was such a target-rich environment. How many battles will we be following? Not a lot of them have really materialized. Do you think Democrats have potentially saved their powder, as our colleague Eric Son would like to say, to uh, fight this one? Well, I think they have a better chance because it takes 60 votes right now to confirm um, the nominee for the Supreme Court. So, yeah, they have a much better chance of blocking that nomination. They almost had no chance of blocking the cabinet appointees. Uh, so, and, I, I, and despite all that, I thought there was high drama there with, you know, Corey, Corey um, you know, testifying ag against Sessions, one senator against another. That, I mean, that was pretty high drama. 
But um, yeah, I, I think there's 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 the more realistic chance that uh, this nomination could be blocked, but I don't think it will be, and I, for the same reasons that David um, <coughs> pointed out. Uh, I think he he has a pretty good pedigree. He has a pretty good record. Uh, I think the fact that he clerked for Kennedy uh, is something that's going to play in his favor. Um, so we'll see. But yeah, with, with if, if if it takes 60, it's going to be tough. If they do the nuclear option and it's just a simple majority, then he just sails through. Um, a lot of political damage done in the process, but he sails through. The seven-country travel ban imposed by President Trump continues to make waves across the world, and its impact quickly became evident at many airports, including DIA. Over the weekend, international arrivals were met with support from demonstrators and attorneys offering assistance, with many travelers in legal limbo. Uh, David, speaking of legal issues, uh, I know there's uh, a, a court battle over at least a portion of it. Take us through legally of where we're at with this travel ban and what we're seeing. For the, the broadest attacks on it, for example, the lawsuit filed by the, the state of Washington and then some others have, have come along as well, I, I think that the chances of success are very slender. The seven countries on this list are the seven that were designated by an act of Congress in 2015, naming Iraq and Syria, and then five more countries added by President Obama using his authority under that law enacted by Congress to add the other five. And it said, if you've ever visited one of these seven countries, which are known as terrorist training centers, uh, your visa is application is problematic. You know, you can maybe come up with some excuse or some reason like, oh, the reason I was in Tehran was because I was there for a business conference and here's the data on the, you know, here's, here's the documentation on that. Uh, that was already the law. So when the uh, current administration steps that up and says for, we're going to suspend new entries for 90 days while we look at this and maybe come up with something even more uh, vetting than the extra vetting the Obama administration already had. I think it's going to be pretty tough to say that's unconstitutional, especially in light of uh, the, the great deference that courts give uh, to Congress and the president on, on the field of immigration in particular. Now, how this was rolled out and implemented was a catastrophic fiasco. Of all the big things that uh, the new president's done with his executive orders and things like that, almost all of them really didn't have an immediate effect. You can say, I hereby order that we start working on building the wall. Well, well fine, um, but that doesn't mean the wall's going to go up the, the next day. But this, this is something that immediately impacted people's lives. It was done with complete incompetence and chaos. And it says something very dangerous about the administration, even beyond this issue, because New White Houses sometimes need to get on their feet and, and have some trouble in their early days. But when you're rolling out a policy, that's where you got everything under your control. And they couldn't do it properly, even with that. And that's a real warning sign about how they will deal with something that's not in their control when a crisis comes at them. 
Penn, this was called a, a variety of things. Uh, you know, one I saw things called like a, a chaos event, almost meant as a, either a distraction or something. So that's you, you're you're watching the right hand because you don't know what's going the left hand is doing. Uh, and then on one end, folks were saying, "Hey, this is an out and out Muslim ban that he wanted to have." And when those were trying to get debunked, Rudy Giuliani, bless his heart, comes out and says, "Yeah, that's what he asked me to do." So I gave him this information. So with the stuff you're seeing, how do you characterize what we've witnessed? What we witnessed, and, and I think the way this is going to play out in court is going to be interesting because, you know, you have laws that are, uh, or, or actions that are unconstitutional or improper on their face, but then you have laws that are unconstitutional or improper as applied. And I think David touched on it. The key issue here is this was probably the most incompetent, um, mean-spirited, disruptive way of trying to establish policy by by, you know, fiat of a king or emperor uh, as opposed to the rule of law. Most of what's in this executive order isn't necessarily grounded in what Congress passed in law. True, countries were placed on a list. True, immigrants from those countries were monitored and vetted. But Congress never authorized an instant ban for the next 120 days or six months saying people can't come back into the country, even people with green cards who have been vetted through the immigration process before and supposedly are now approved to move back and forth from this country. It was incompetently rolled out because even the Pentagon approached the White House and said, we need some exceptions because you have now restricted the movement of people we count on to handle and conduct military affairs and other diplomatic missions. Uh, and, you know, and the, the stated justification is odd. Clearly, this is a president who was more concerned about fulfilling a campaign promise than doing something real. Because when you invoke what happened on September 11th, and one of the countries you don't include in your order is Saudi Arabia, where most of the terrorists came from on that day, it just doesn't make any sense. So I don't know if the court challenges are as important as the fact that this administration has already started to and will have to continue to roll this thing back because they clearly didn't have all their people on board when they started. And, and it's just a ham-handed attempt that has, quite frankly, just made the U.S. look bad. Craig, you have seen a lot of stories as a former editor of Denver Post uh, that you've had to figure out the headlines and how, you know, what, what angle is the most important for people to see here, to, to know it's the very front um, part of the story. When you see this, where does your gut tell you that's the, the most important thing to see? Well, um, obviously the policy implications are the most important, but the most interesting, I think, is the reaction to it. Um, you know, it, I, when I turned on the television, I thought I was looking at a report from Turkey. I mean, I, I just couldn't believe what I was looking at. Uh, almost the spontaneity of it uh, was reminded me of Arab Spring. I mean, it was really interesting. And when you looked at the, the signs and stuff, I, I think one of the critical things is the word resistance. Uh, you don't really see that uh, word too often associated with American politics. But I, but I think that there was something very special about this, and I, I found it to be quite interesting. And I also thought it was interesting that um, that it went on for more than one day. It went on for several days. And I think we're going to see that replicated um, more and more depending on uh, on how aggressive the president is and delivering on his campaign promises. But uh, I, I thought that was interesting and that would be something that, you know, if I were sitting in my old chair that I would be paying a lot of attention to. 
Uh, Patty, as you look at this, is it more of a chaos event? There's something else to be looked at here? Or is this the event and this is where the focus should be? Well, the fact that it was so incompetently rolled out is one of the really frightening things because what will happen next? He did threaten this. It did happen. I also have to point out there's the term Monday Night Massacre in politics. We've got the Friday afternoon fiasco, which is this came down right after we'd filmed last week's show. Mm -hmm. And it came down so fast. We didn't have any warning, obviously, but neither did the Pentagon, neither did the State Department. Incredible the way it happened. And I'm with Greg. The fact that there was so much spontaneous protests in Denver two days at DIA, we had our reporter out there. And what was really interesting is originally the cops weren't prepared for it. They gave some bad advice about free speech. But then everyone moved outside on the plaza. The protests continued for hours. The cops got better, Rob Chief White was there, and Denver was peaceful as, a, as opposed to, say, Seattle. So we are definitely learning some lessons here in Denver. Wish Washington could learn to damp down on the chaos, too. <laughs> Let's get a quick take on this last one. Still not fully embracing the term sanctuary city, Mayor Michael Hancock issued a new statement this week reassuring Denver citizens that all people will be taken care of and both immigrants and refugees are welcome. This comes after his previous comments regarding whether or not Denver is a sanctuary city upset members of Denver's international community last week. Uh, Pen, your quick thoughts on this one. We started to talk about it last week that, well, we're not a sanctuary city, so don't worry about the threat that we received from President Trump. Oh, wait, we are a sanctuary city, but we're not really... I don't know where we're at. What do you think? Well, and that's because you can't fault the mayor. You can't embrace a concept that has no definition in law. Sure. Um, it, it, it's a term used, but there's no way to define it. Uh, the reality is mayors around the country are going to be concerned. It, you know, Republicans used to always criticize the federal governments for mandates with no money. This is one. This is a president by executive order saying, I want you to enforce the immigration laws. We're not going to give you any money or any other support, but just do it. And so I think Mayor Hancock has done what a number of other mayors need to do, what's right for their own community and what, what feels right for the, the folks in their cities. Gregory, your quick take on this one. I thought the mayor looked kind of uncomfortable in that video, uh, <laughs> having to come back a, a second time to try to explain uh, his position. But I also agree with Penfield that it's really hard to explain something that really has no, no true foundation. Uh, I do think that if Trump delivers on his threat to yank uh, federal funding from so-called sanctuary city uh, uh, cities, Hancock is going to have to be, be in more of a fighting mode like some of these other mayors that you're seeing who are like standing up in defiance of what uh, uh, Trump is threatening. Right now, he doesn't have to do that, but I think this is going to become more politicized as we get closer to a showdown with the administration. Patty, do you think Hancock needs to be more direct? Well, his staff is being more direct. Last night, they went to two members. Alan Salazar was one of them, one of the city attorneys, went to the Latino gathering that was billed as a discussion of the sanctuary city. 2,000 people were there, and they flat out said, our policy will be to fight any attempt for the federal government to... Um, to break the rules with the citizens of Denver. They're, today, Hancock is meeting with more Latinos, so we'll find out what happens with that. Um, but interestingly, Homeland Security has a chart on what are who's violating things they consider sanctuary city, and Denver's on it for declining to um, hold people, immigrants, in ICE extra days. David, wrap it up for us. Denver can do what it wants, um, thanks to good Supreme Court precedents over the last 25 years, uh, upholding states' rights in a variety of 
of contexts. Um, the federal government has the, uh, thanks to the 7-2 states' rights decision in, in the Obamacare case, uh, the federal government can make grants conditional to states, but it's got to make those conditions explicit up front. You can't retroactively say we're going to start declining funding. Going forward, can new grants enacted by Congress say if you're not going to cooperate with federal immigration enforcement, we're not going to give you a grant? Uh, mostly, yes, and particularly in a city like Denver where it doesn't really get that much of its money uh, from the federal government. So, yes, as, as long as Denver's willing to pay for its own government with its own taxpayers and not be dependent on or get and is willing to give up that two, one or three percent it gets from the feds, uh, it, it's got its autonomy. Let's go to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week, and as always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Joshua Cummings, who has been charged with, the, with killing the RTD security guard earlier this week, point-blank range. What we have to remember about him is he is not a refugee. He is not from one of those seven countries. He is our own homegrown crazy. David. Former Department of, Home, of Homeland Security head Janet Napolitano, now the head of the University of California system, showing she still continues to be pretty incompetent on security when a riot took place at the University of California at Berkeley uh, that prevented a speaker from speaking. This is, uh, uh, she's, she's letting the fascists uh, control what goes on on campus. Penn. Um, the current administration, you can't do international diplomacy by tweet. Before you told Israel, go ahead and put more settlements on the West Bank, now you just reverse course and nobody knows what we stand for anymore. Gregory. I'm going to stay on Trump. Um, in declaring February Black History Month, the fact that he didn't know that Frederick Douglass was dead and wanted to invite him into the administration because he sounded like a really smart fellow, that's pretty disgraceful. <laughs> Say something nice about somebody. Something's pretty difficult, Patty. Uh, that's a tough act to follow. Um, happy 20th anniversary to Endangered Places Program with Colorado Preservation and in a conflict of interest. Um, the World's Wonder View Tower, which some friends and I just bought out in Genoa, is one of the endangered places. <laughs> and we'll care for now. David. The uh, state senate, which today passed on second reading Senate Bill 5, which says that at, at public schools, if they choose, uh, teachers who carry arms at those schools, which they can already do under state law, but they can now, a school district can, if it wants to, work with a sheriff's office uh, to provide extra training to those teachers. Penn. Uh, Assistant City Attorney Crystal D. Herrera, the fact that she stood up in front of the crowd and said, we're going to fight this uh, in terms of the sanctuary city designation, she didn't, you know, soft shoe it, she didn't mess around, she just came out and said, we have to sue, we'll sue. Gregory. I'm going to go with President, former President Obama for having the courage to come out and support the protesters in the face of uh, this um, um, uh, Trump Muslim ban. Uh, breaking with precedent, doing it takes courage, especially so early. That is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Check out our Black History Month programming throughout the month of February, including Black Ballerina on the 19th and Black America Since MLK Still I Rise on the 26th. Also, be sure to check out brand new episodes of The New Black Experience starring our own Gabrielle Bryant, airing all month long and available online. And as always, be sure to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes, on Google Play, and on Facebook and Twitter. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night. Thank you.